Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, a podcast where normally we talk about plants and plant molecular biology, but to be honest, I did my preparation very late and came up with pretty much only non-plant facts this week around, so hopefully Yara, my co-host, has something to say about the world of plants, but personally, I'm only here for the whales. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do have some plant facts today. Um, I have some plant stuff and I'm drinking like something uh, to the occasion, something green. Um, Which looks kind of, um, it's it's what you would imagine radioactivity looks like. It's very, um, Homer Simpson has dropped true. a bar of radium into his beer and yeah, what is it? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a Russian uh, lemonade made with woodruff. Woodruff is the English word for it. My favorite taste, flavor in the world. And it's just it's like, Waldmeister in German. Yeah, it's very sweet. It's very Waldmeistery. And um, I just added a little bit of rum to it to like counter the sweetness a little bit but it doesn't really work it has like mm. i don't know i think it's like saturated sugar solution green dye and some like woodruff aroma it's the, the problem is like it's, it's woodruff in english but we actually don't really like in non in countries that are not actually germany i don't think we drink woodruff i think it's it's quite specific to like maybe germany maybe austria and switzerland i'm not sure no i think scandinavian um, i think it's like more north i think in like i think sweden might have some like woodruff you know based, what? like w- spice right in to shout at me if i'm like excluding your cultural traditions but like before i came to germany like in australia it hasn't made its way to australia yet i would say um yeah. so when i came to germany i learned that everything was waldmeister flavored so like you have like gummy bears you have cordial they put it at the bottom of beer so you can get like beer that's either like stop or go beer and the red one has like cherry syrup and the green one has waldmeister so woodruff syrup yeah. it's everywhere um and the reality is i hadn't i hadn't encountered that before and then i found out that it's yoram's favorite thing <laughs> I mean, we we had we had candy as kids that was flavored with Woodruff, and I think that's what uh, imprinted me on liking it so much. And also, it's yeah, sort of I, rare. I mean, it it is everywhere, but also not really everywhere. And usually, you find it like in springtime a bit more. But apart from that, um, I mean, there's like a few couple of times per year that I actually get to enjoy that stuff because um, apart from candy, it's not really in things. And I mean, this is a lemonade. Nobody else likes it enough to want to buy it because. It's- no, I mean it has it has also a bad reputation because like if you make it make it with real woodruff from the forest, not just the uh, aroma stuff, then it contains cumarin, uh, which is toxic. Um, and yeah, and also you, probably fox piss. Yeah, and you have to be really careful with how much you put in your in your drink. Um, and therefore, I think it sort of fell out of fashion because people realized that they might get sick from it. Um, it's weird how that happened like the second people <laughs> realize that they might actually you know get violently ill from drinking like violently green cordial they stopped they stopped drinking the cordial it's, <laughs> yeah it's but, almost bizarre but then i have to import it from russia and then i get some nice green lemonade but this one did you import from russia the syrup and uh, the yeah the lemonade itself like it's a big uh big green bottle of of lemonade and like i the other day I discovered birch, yeah, bir- birch is the word, right? The tree, birch. Um, um, and you can make juice from it. Uh, and I didn't know that. Like, you can sort of tap it and the, the sap is very watery, but has a nice flavor. And Wait, this also is a Polish like, thing. Yeah, a Polish and Russian thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I got that from a supermarket here and it was quite expensive, like two, two euro 2.50 for a liter of it. Um, uh, 
And so, I mean, yeah, most juices and everything is cheaper than that. Um, but it tasted very, very nice. It was like one of these, um, like, usually when you either, when you drink something that has flavor, it's either coffee or tea, or it has alcohol in, in it, or it is sweet because it's a juice. And if you want to have something that's not a hot drink, and it's not sweet, but it doesn't have alcohol in it, but still flavor, there's really poor like a poor choice there apart from like birch juice i drank juice. some gin before we started this podcast and i'm really full of like struggling to follow <laughs> the saying, slow chart like, of like it has flavor but it's not coffee or tea but it's not alcoholic and then you go no off and if yes go here <laughs> and then you end up with woodruff like <laughs> ultimately you're drinking woodruff no birch you're drinking option. birch juice um and ah, that's and uh, that was very woodruff? nice and i wanted to then i wanted to buy some of that online and i couldn't find it really but i found this shop that sells like russian and polish um sweets and drinks and stuff and so i ordered like a whole box of um polish and russian candy plus some like weird drinks like the woodruff drink um and some other stuff that was also um yeah interesting that's my also and then like um yeah i i had like a several big bags of like um the the krufka polish uh, toffee candy and like this a russian version of that what is it? It's like a toffee, but then inside it's liquid. So it's like kind of hard toffee outside and then you bite into it and it like melts. And no, no. The, the one that I had, it was like very crumbly all the way through. And that's that's why I like no, it No, you've so got much. the wrong kinds. You should get the different ones which have the melty inside. No, <laughs> no, I won't. There's a whole like hierarchy of, of Polish toffee and I don't think you've chosen the best one. No, my my favorite it. Polish candy, and unfortunately they were out of stock as well, is like the, the chocolate covered plums. They have like dried plums and they're covered in dark chocolate. And this is the absolute best thing in the world. I think I um, used my powers for bad and not for good in that like I, I once read um, the thesis, like I did like English checking on the thesis of, of a friend who was Polish and she's like, oh, I want to get you something. I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. You don't have to get me anything. It's fine. And she's like, no, no, I want to get you something. I was like, okay, I'm going to need you to get me these plums covered in chocolate. Like this is like, <laughs> please, I need boxes of these, like boxes and boxes of these. And that was, you know, yeah. she kept me in plums for a couple of months. Yeah. It's good. They they are delicious. Symbiosis. Mutualism. <laughs> yeah. And that's how I ended up drinking Woodruff tonight. Yeah. That's that's not terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah. Somebody was telling me today that they were drinking like Coke that not only is Coke Zero, it doesn't have sugar and calories, but it's also decaffeinated. And at that point, I just, yeah. I don't understand your life choices. Like I was like, this is literally yeah. the worst thing anybody has ever done. Why? Yeah. Like, did you have a coin inside your stomach that you needed to, like, make <laughs> shiny? Because otherwise, what, are we, what are we doing with our lives? diluted phosphoric acid and I couldn't get my craving. Like, I, I understand that isolation is boring, but at this point it's like, I mean, there are, I don't know, put fireworks up your nose. There are other things to do with your life, children. <laughs> Can... <laughs> maybe you want to tell me what you did with your week first because I think if I discuss my week it's just going to get a bit like literally insane um so maybe you go first your arm I mean I didn't I didn't do that much um I'm you did something yesterday there I did something yesterday but it was yesterday like, yeah I I had um like yesterday I set up a little tv studio at home um just because I can and it's boring in lockdown um I was giving a talk for um for my work stuff and we're presenting the results of the work that we've been doing over the past nine months or so um and it was exciting um to talk to like i mean this it was is, this is your day job so my your day job yeah. officially has a day job where he's actually a science communicator not exactly just for funsies and um 
unfortunately, like, I mean, I can link to the stuff here, but it's all in German, so I guess not of interest to most people who are listening. But I mean, uh, guys, learn German. It's not that hard. <laughs> what else are you doing with your time? Like, you've literally watched six episodes of six seasons of MASH by now. Like, if you're at the stage of isolation where you think it's now good to watch to rewatch Seinfeld, maybe like learn German instead. Yeah, that that's actually a good idea. Um, yeah, and we presented a, a, um, a little tool amongst other things um, that we that we called the science communication canvas, where you can um, sort of figure out your own science communication message based if you are a researcher. So the the idea is that you are a researcher, you want to communicate your science, you don't really know know how to do that, and the first thing you do is sort of on one sheet of paper write down a couple of like key things and then you have sort of one like a business card is uh, in the end that has a summary of your work and also your personal context to it the society context to it and f future outlooks to it so sort of on on one side it's very factual about the science and on the other side it's very context driven about like personality like personally society and so on and uh, we sort of we we came up with this and designed this whole thing and tested it on ourselves for a little bit um but this time like we we actually like put that into into the public and it was quite exciting to talk about that and then later on twitter like so many people like retweeted and liked this when i shared this that i'm actually quite excited about the response that we got and that was really uh, interesting um to do so there was a little bit of like stress beforehand to get everything out because like we we literally literally on this day of the presentation we finished like the last stuff on the better version of the website that's live now so we're still continuing to work on it but um it was really much a rush also out the, the reason door. why why any of us commit to doing presentations or conferences is to just to like set ourselves a deadline where we have to get <laughs> done by like oh yeah i'll totally yeah, absolutely like you you submit your abstract to the conference in june and you're like oh yeah i'll have this and this and this result by then and you know you don't absolutely but then you've got like <laughs> pressure 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 yeah so it was it was very good in that way but also stressful <laughs> because of that because like like always like you do a long time only a little bit and then the closer you get to the deadline you spike in productivity and then you rush you like overshoot you're actually doing more than you should be doing and then you present it somehow works out right yeah and then you do like a little bit of like cleanup of the of the aftermath and then you start again at the bottom of the curve <laughs> until you have the next presentation <laughs> i mean there's the thing like you you then completely exhaust yourself from overworking like from these this long sprint at the end that you then have to take like a two week not real break because you're like you're technically working but you're like so completely pooped that you're just <laughs> yeah yeah it's not yeah. sustainable it's, <laughs> i would it's not recommend a better way which would be just like doing your work efficiently and continuously instead of like chaos and then procrastination and then chaos again <laughs> yeah but that is the cycle of life yeah um, yeah, and that that was pretty much my my week, and now I'm in the aftermath stage, and then soon I'll I'll continue to work on it. Like we also like we recorded a podcast and everything. I'm quite excited about that, but again, all in German. Um, but if you want to listen to me speak in German about how computers understand human language, then follow the link that we put in there now for like the two people who might be able to understand this. How what what was your week like, Tegan? Like, give me the insanity. I don't even remember. I, I I mean, it's not like like exciting things happen. It's just that I had I had a discovery, which is I learned about whale fall. Do you know what whale fall is? Is that is that like the the uh, whale vomit that's very precious, or is that something else? 
No, that's a different thing. I don't know what that is, but it's not this thing. Anyway, before you Google it, I want to read you out something and I want you to tell me like what it's about. So it it starts, um, this is the end, hold your breath and count to 10, feel the earth move and then hear my heart burst again. And this is the end. I've drowned and dreamt this moment. So overdue, I owe them, swept away, I'm stolen. And then it goes... No, I think I went to the rest. Anyway. Um, well, that's not a scientific paper, I reckon, from what you just talked It's not a scientific paper. <laughs> um, probably some people will recognize it already because they're more cultured than I am. But let's go back to whale fall. So whale fall is basically this thing where a whale dies in the ocean. What happens when a whale dies in the ocean? Um, it sinks to the bottom and then lots and lots of creatures come and eat it. Exactly. So if... Like whale fall is when it sinks like below a kind of cutoff. So it's like a thousand meters. That's just, you know, the human desire to quantify and, you know, make things into binaries and so on. But anyway, so basically whale dies, its carcass falls to the floor, but it's basically this huge mass that is falling to the deep ocean where there's not much happening it's so deep and dark that light is not really penetrating so we don't have a lot of like primary productivity because there's no like access to light so we can't have photo autotrophs so like animals that make um like get carbon using light so plants kind of things algae so instead you have some like camera autotrophs and some other things but they need input and this whale carcass that falls can become like an entire ecosystem. It can, you know, feed and, and like there can be communities that thrive. So like lobsters and prawns and shrimps and, you know, all of these different like tiny organisms, big organisms can, yeah, it can become a community. Like and a like dead whale eels. can become a community. Like, I've, I've seen a video once of like weird eels like swarming in and like, eating the, the, the flesh off the bones and it's yeah it's it's kind of amazing and it's just like it's also kind of beautiful this idea that like this whale has died and then its body goes to be used by organisms that like are in this desert and suddenly it's like yeah it's this entire life support in this desert of darkness it's like quite beautiful to me so I, I became a little bit obsessed with this idea of whale fall and how amazing it is and like how incredible the world is. And then that was stage one. Oh my God. Stage two was becoming convinced that the Adele song Skyfall is actually about whale fall and that they've just made it about Skyfall, Skyfall at the, the last minute. So like all of the lyrics of like all of the lyrics like seriously all of the lyrics of skyfall like hold this is the end <laughs> that's the I, end I, of the whale i recognize the whole hold your breath like count to 10 to 10 so it's like the whale is dying he has no breath he goes down to the dates feel the earth move it's like this momentous whale hear my heart burst again the whale probably died of a heart attack we don't know this is the end i've drowned and dreamt this moment we're literally in the ocean you guys so overdue i owe them swept away i'm stolen so he's like swept away to the bottom of the ocean and then like it just keeps on going down so skyfall is where we start just change oh, excuse me just change skyfall to whalefall whalefall is where we start a thousand miles and poles apart like this could not be more about whalefall 
where worlds collide. So you have like the upper world where the whales live colliding and days are dark. There's no light in the depth of the ocean. And then I may, says, you may have my number, but you can't take my name. I'm not really sure what that's about. I think she had to add that in the end to make it seem like it was about James Bond and not about whale fall. But like, this is the best thing ever. You're making me it's so happy. Am- like, I've cracked the code. There's absolutely no way that Adele did not write this song about whales falling to the depth of the ocean and starting their own ecosystem. Like, it's not physically possible. I, I reject any reality in which Adele did not think about whales as she wrote this song. Yeah, I, I would even go further. I think it's from a point of view of like some creature like at the bottom in like this desert, and like from time to time you have like these massive Absolutely. creatures coming so down. The first, the first court, the first verse. This is the end. That's from the whale's point of view. But then you switch to the point of view of like the organisms that are deep, and they're like, "Let the sky fall when it crumbles. We will stand tall, face it all together. Let the sky fall." And like they're waiting for this whale to come down, and it's magical and beautiful and glorious, and it's just. And then, then if you still don't believe me, freaking go to YouTube, watch this video YouTube video clip it's literally like bubbles rising from the deep is the background of the video <laughs> like amazing <laughs> amazing oh my god that makes me so happy like <laughs> i have had so much joy <laughs> from this moment and i don't even care that i'm clearly have reached the point of isolation where <laughs> sanity is no longer an option i just i'm happy about whalefall I have plans when we all open up to go to the Natural History Museum in London and look at the giant whale skeleton that's there and sing whale fall to that whale out of respect for what its kins have done for the creatures of the deep. Now I want to get into like a music journalist career just to, so that I can at one point eventually interview Adele and ask her, like, is Skyfall actually about whale fall? Because it all makes just sense. Like, just tell the truth, Adele. Like, we just we just want the truth. By that time, it will be like 20, 30 years ago that you sang that song. So <laughs> now you can tell us, is it about Whalefall? I always knew. <laughs> oh, my God. This is the best. <laughs> um, <laughs> I This gave me so much joy. I listened to this song several times. I watched the video and I just was like singing. Like, unfortunately, I cannot sing. So this, like, actually really voicing my passion for whale four was well out of my octave range but like oh the joy oh the pleasure oh the happiness <laughs> um i shared my i'm not gonna say conspiracy theory i'm gonna i'm shared my truth finding mission with some other people they were not super appreciative but like no this is this is the absolute best thing i mean this is i always like i always had this love hate relationship with that song and probably the hate came from the fact that I felt something was off there because yeah. there was a word replaced. And now uh, there's only love. Yeah. <laughs> Let the whale fall, the sty crumbles, Adele is going to sue me because <laughs> I can't sing. <laughs> um, this might be a really good point in the podcast to mention that I have encouraged Yoram to get like some sort of sound or indicator for when we're really diverting away from science and it becomes like complete crap. Uh, (laughs) 
we would be playing that jingle at this point if that was the case. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's theoretically a science podcast. but <laughs> it's, it's about the science of uh, ocean floor ecosystems, um, quite obviously. <laughs> Super beautiful. Like, just... Oh. How, how can we move on for that? Like, how, like you, you burned all the power <laughs> at, at the beginning of the show, Tegan. Now we have I think a really a really good way to move on is um my my mother actually sent me a a scientific blog from the conversation so you guys probably know this website already they do like science journalism and it's called five ways to spot if somebody is trying to mislead you when it comes to science so like this might be a nice way to shift back into reality and it just kind of lists um different mechanisms that are used by people to sort of like bamboozle others so the first one is using us versus them like you know the authority is trying to screw us over it's big farmer it's big whale it's big whatever um no i'm sorry i didn't say whale um <laughs> the number two is this kind of argument of i'm not a scientist but um and then saying completely unscientific stuff and i think all of you also know that if somebody ever says i'm not an ex but get no. prepared for them to say something that's quite problematic <laughs> see also i'm not a racist but i like to say i'm not a racist to things that are obviously not racist like <laughs> i'm not a racist but i think we need more bread <laughs> <laughs> it just that's confuses people dude. very much <laughs> yeah they're like is have i <laughs> is I mean, bread racist <laughs> that's the thing like sometimes i'm trying to like re like I want to have an open mind, but also have like critical thinking. And sometimes I'm like, have I missed something? Is there something I should be aware about, about the world that I didn't know? Like, I mean, definitely there's, I've had the instance in the past where like, I didn't know that slang we use or like, you know, words we use are actually pejorative or, you know, stolen words like from, from other cultures. And then like, I, I don't know it. And then I, I learn it. So then, you know, if you said <laughs> I'm not a racist, but bread and I'll be like, yeah, I mean, what am I mi have I missed something about bread? <laughs> yeah, true. Like, um, and what are the other things? Um, what do we get to? Um, the reference, the third one is like science not being settled. So this is like a really common oh, yeah. argument we see against all science. Like, you know, it's a scientific theory. It's like only the theory of gravity. So like, it's not a fact of gravity. So like that one comes up quite a lot. Um. And then overly simplistic explanations. And this is like also a, a problem because it like pulls into one of our human cognitive biases where we we like things that sound simple and they seem more true to us if they're simple, which is just not the case necessarily. Sometimes, you know, guys, sometimes life is difficult. That's just how it is. And then the fifth one is like cherry picking. So just like choosing data that makes your case look good, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, we'll link to that. Watch out for those. Yeah, uh, today is a bit of a um, special episode uh, because we... Because it's all about whales, you guys. Every <laughs> single fact is going to be about whales. You're going to love it. Um, yeah, we, we, we ran out of time in the preparation, so we skipped some of the segments that would usually come here. Um, we're doing them next week, and instead we're just going to talk to, uh, about a few of the things that um, got our attention in the last couple of days. Uh, and so here we go with that, and now... My jingle button is gone here. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. 
and I'm think I'm gonna take over right now uh, with a nautical team a theme that's like not immediately linked to whales, but it's about sea slugs. And we've talked about sea slugs here before. Like, do you remember what, like, why we like th uh, sea slugs on this show? That's about plants, uh, apparently. Like, some people <laughs> claim that still. I do. I also want to send the uh, mention the fact that your wife totally betrayed you by also sending me this fun fact before the recording, like in the <laughs> hope that I would scoop you and undermine you on the show. Oh my god! How, so, how would she not give that to me? <laughs> like when I told her that I have to prepare a show, and she's like, "Oh yeah, cool. I'm gonna send that to Tegan." <laughs> um. So we've talked about these sea slugs before because there is a certain type of sea uh, slug that has become kind of infamous. I would say because it steals chloroplasts. So chloroplasts are the organelles in which photosynthesis takes place. And the idea is that the sea slugs basically eat like algae or things that can photosynthesize. And then instead of digesting all of those cells, they kind of keep the chloroplasts for themselves. And that lets them in turn basically be photosynthetic. They can use the, the chloroplasts to um, fix carbon and you know make sugars from carbon dioxide. But I do have to comment that although we've discussed this a few times on the show, there there's a bit of controversy about it. It's not it's not super certain that the slugs can really use those chloroplasts in in the way that it seems. Yeah, um, and there's another thing that sea slugs apparently can do. Um, sometimes they just decapitate themselves, and instead of dying, what they do is not dying and growing a whole new body. It's pretty amazing. There's a video um, that we're linking uh, as well, like in the article, um, and it's 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 really creepy because you see like the body of the sea slug and the head of the sea slug, and the body is still, and the head crawls around, and apparently it just takes a day for the the wound to close, and then about a couple a couple of weeks up to a month um, to fully regrow a functional body, and then the sea slug continues its life and it's a happy sea slug again. Just as a question, did you see the moment where the sea slug actually pulled its own head off? No, no, but I read about it and uh, it said that um, this is actually a process that takes a couple of hours. So it's not really that it just like goes plop and has the head in, is, the head is off and it, the head makes its own way um, or like a lizard that would lose its tail very quickly. But it was it's like a slow process of like tearing off the head from the rest of the body or tearing the body off the head because the bed, the, the head Did they on. describe it? Like, I mean, it doesn't have slug arms, so it's not like pulling its head off. So is it just like... I think it's sort of like falling off, like... like the, yeah, it's just like some 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 cells are breaking a, a, a boundary there and then like it slowly falls off. Um, but the interesting thing is like the, the head doesn't have any organs apart from like some some nervous system, but it has no heart, it has no no stomach, no intestine, nothing. Um, and it still stays alive for quite some time before it has like rebuilt all of these organs. And um, that led to the hypothesis, which is really it's 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 far from being proven, but maybe the fact that they can retain chloroplasts can help them in having sort of a low level energy input without having all of its organ, which is enough to keep it alive for long enough. But as I said, like this is this is really just a hypothesis. They couldn't test that yet because they just they just observed that behavior and now like they can do further tests and figure out like um, how does it work. Uh, did you also read like why they're doing that? Yes. Um, they get infested by parasites from what I remember. And they basically 
don't really enjoy that as I mean, that seems reasonable. I wouldn't want to be <laughs> infested by parasites. And the easiest way to get rid of parasites is to just take your head off and remove your head from the situation. And yes. I guess that's a win-win scenario because the parasites kind of get to keep the body for a bit. I guess eventually they die. So maybe it's not a long-term win. But Yeah. But yeah. in the short term, definitely. Yeah. It's such a, such a weird idea. If, like, just you have something wrong with your body and just like, okay, <laughs> let me get rid of the thing. Um, I'm just going to grow a new one. I mean, it's not like super common. Like they don't do that constantly. They had like a tank, I think of like 200. Cat is trying to drink my water. Not having that, any of that. Um, they had like a tank of like 200 individuals or something. And just like three of them did that. Uh, mm. So it's not like that they're constantly always doing that. They also like they poke them and stress them and try to see if that's sort of a defense behavior. If they... Like if if a predator attacks them, do they just shed their body and then escape? But as the process is so slow, um, that would not help. And also, they couldn't trigger with like all their poking and and hurting. Um, they couldn't like injuring the the this, the slugs. They couldn't really trigger them to decapitate themselves. They could. They would only do that whenever infested with these parasites. I wonder what happened if they would get like pinned down. Like if the body got stuck like under a rock or something. If they would also do it then. Yeah. That seems. That would be interesting. Do you, do you remember like when you were doing your master's and your PhD and, you know, you were staying in the, the lab quite late and your family and friends who weren't scientists kind of didn't understand what you're doing? Yeah. And you were like, yeah, you know, I'm trying to work out how like photosynthesis, photosystem one like gets itself together. It's really important for, like, imagine if your answer was just like, I'm poking slugs, like mom, I'm poking slugs, but you haven't been home until like 10 o'clock for the last week. Yeah. But I'm, I've got to poke these slugs, mom. Like <laughs> they're not going to poke them each other. They're not going to poke themselves. <laughs> like, Beautiful. <laughs> I'm an important slug poker. Um, yeah. So I encourage everyone to follow the link uh, because it looks quite weird to see this, this decapitated hat moving about and then eventually i mean you don't see it in the video how it's regrowing but just seeing that that head move on its own it's really creepy but very interesting as well i think i want to <laughs> go to a fact that is also not a plant fact but kind of segues nicely from this fact into yarm's next fact and this is that i'm i think i mentioned this last time i'm now following a um, instagram account that kind of discusses scandinavian um, idioms Mm -hmm. And I think last time I brought brought up the idea of like being really poor was like to not have a red prawn. It's like to not even have a prawn to your name. Um, just because I think it's important to falsely um, kind of create the idea that, that Scandinavian countries have an obsession with prawns. I saw today the idea of sliding in on a prawn sandwich. <laughs> Can you guess what that might mean? Uh, coming in at the last minute. No. Oh, okay. Any yeah. other guesses? Um, maybe sort of like stumbling into a conversation or something. People are already having a conversation. You sort of like interrupt them with your idea. and That means you're sliding in on a prawn sandwich because it's not very graceful. I think we have to go a bit more, um, less about the sliding action and more about like, I think it's closer to the, the idea in English of being born with a golden spoon in your mouth. Okay. So Does that help you? I mean, I'm giving you another idiom to make things harder. No, I mean, I know that idiom. Um, so that you're born with like lots of benefits already. And it's very easy for you because you already have 
like the golden spoon, as golden spoon that feeds you probably prawn sandwiches from an early age, so you don't have to do anything for yourself. Um, yeah, so I think it's not quite that, but it's like it's, it's pretty related. So it's translated as when somebody hasn't had to work hard to get where they are in life. Yeah, but <laughs> it's nice. And that's sliding in on a prawn sandwich. So you yeah. can say like, oh yeah, this guy sl- sl- slid in on a prawn sandwich. I, f- I do. F- I do find it hard to imagine how this would work in a conversation. Like, ah, uh, you know, Yarm, he's the sort who just like slid in on a prawn sandwich. Like, is that <laughs> is that how it goes? Please, please like, say Swedish that, people. Please start saying that from now on. <laughs> it just it doesn't. The problem with idioms is that when you try to translate them, it's just not helpful to anyone involved. Like, it's just. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, I thought that. this would. I, I, I often do that the other way around. Like I take like English phrases and sayings and like literally translate them into German and then use that in German, and it's just like so delightful. What's, weird. A, what's a good example? Do you know a good? Oof. Like I think the the good one from from German is my English is not the yellow from the egg, yeah. but it goes like this kind of like yeah, from, or from life. A- Life is no pony farm is kind yeah. of the, the traditional <laughs> German one. Um, if uh, if you want to be really um, sure about something, then you would say like we have to go on number secure or number safe, depending on how you want to translate that word, which like makes no sense uh, in English, but also in German. Like auf Nummer sicher gehen means like to be very sure about something, um, and I have no I idea where it comes from. It implies that somebody's got access to an Excel spreadsheet, doesn't it? <laughs> from my experience, doesn't seem wrong. <laughs> yeah, that couldn't very well be. Anyway, I saw that you have a fact that also relates to prawns, so I thought that was a nice segue. Yeah, um, but I, it's, it's so far down on my listing, you're breaking up all my storytelling. The storytelling that happens when I just like one by one find the facts and put them one after the other um <laughs> what's this tegan gave some narrative flow to our podcast outrageous i will not stand for this um, <laughs> bring back the chaos <laughs> yeah i Can we talk about whales again guys the thing about whales <laughs> no the, the thing about cuttlefish is that cuttlefish are just as smart as small children um at least in like Have one. Have you told this to your small child? <laughs> I mean, like, do you ever like say, "Hey, see this cuttlefish"? Like, no, actually, I want. But what I took away from the story is that I want to do the test that I'm going to talk about now to my child. I mean, it's a very, it's a harmless test. Like most experiments on kids, don't do them. Um, but this is an experiment I think where there's no real harm. Um, Next week we'll be discussing the difference between harmless and unethical. I mean, this is not even unethical. I mean, this, this is a test that's literally designed to be done on kids. Do you know the marshmallow test? I mean, I'm sure you do. Okay, so the idea is that you give a kid, you put a marshmallow in front of a kid, and you tell the kid, if you wait 10 minutes, you can have two marshmallows, and you see if they can wait 10 minutes or they can just, like, eat the marshmallow. It's not 10 minutes, maybe it's, like, three minutes. It's, it's quite short. But this is the ability for somebody to delay gratification in order to increase their reward. And there have been like some tests on this in the past, which suggests that like kids who do better in the marshmallow test when they're young are more successful and earn more money later in life. But I'm not sure if those are actually scientifically valid because I'm a plant scientist and not a sociologist. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and like the main thing that's tested with that is apart from like delaying gratification is future planning. Like you have to understand that in the future there will be another event and that event will be better than what you have right now. And many And kids- if I'm 
if I'm not wrong, like be below a certain age, kids just aren't capable. Like, like bef- I think before three or something. Like, yeah, somewhere their in that brain range. just hasn't developed, so they like literally are physically incapable of doing this because their brain doesn't have like I don't know the right lobes or synapses or whatever the hell brains have. Yeah, yeah, they sort of live in the present, have like some understanding of the past, but have no idea of like future planning, and therefore they can't really like understand that if they just wait they get more marshmallows um and but they did this experiment on cuttlefish and obviously cuttlefish doesn't really enjoy marshmallows but instead um they had like i think it would be like upsetting to them because like the (laughs) the body of a cuttlefish is quite marshmallowy in texture especially if you cook it correctly so i think like it would be kind of a traumatic experience for him to like (laughs) like if he felt it in his hand it would feel like flesh like you know when you handle raw chicken, something feels just like a little bit not right? It's because you know that your own raw flesh would like feel the same way if you held it in your hand. And that's how the shrimp, oh the, the cuttlefish feels when he has this the This is so dark, Tegan. Um, so what they gave the cuttlefish instead is uh, two kinds of um, of food that it really Shrimp. Likes. Prawn, which they eat but don't really like. And live shrimp, which they really find delicious. Um, Wait, they don't like prawn? And they they eat prawn but they don't like it as much as live shri- uh, shrimp so there's definitely like a hierarchy in their preference there um and they put like the the, the prawn and the shrimp both in like see-through boxes and they trained the cuttlefish before to recognize um signs on the doors of these boxes um one says one of the signs said like uh, this door will open immediately and the other sign said this door will open in, at a later time um, and they also had as a control a sign that says like this door will never open, um, and then they let the cuttlefish into these these little boxes. That's already quite complex. Like yeah. your child is not at the stage where I mean he's only like what two. He's not at the stage where he would understand that. Yeah, but I mean you can't tell a cuttlefish that there will be more marshmallows later. So you sort of have to train it first to understand that one is like a delayed opening and the other one is a mm. immediate opening. I, I'm just saying, like, that in itself is enough to make yeah. us slightly wary of cuttlefish, right? <laughs> yeah. They can tell the difference between, like, delayed and, and now. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, but they when they cuttlefish came in and they came to the door that opened immediately and they saw the prawn inside, they looked at the other door. And when the door had the sign saying, like, uh, I will open later, they would wait until that door would open. And if the door would say, like, I will never open, then they would eat the prawn. So they would understand that if there is, like... Um, even though they had the food right in front of them, the prawn, um, if there's a chance of getting the live shrimp, they would wait for that and take that later. And they waited up to two minutes for for the live shrimp before they would then sort of give up and then e- instead eat the prawn and, and carry on. Um, and it's quite interesting because, first of all, like it's um, usually like crows and dogs and some other sort of uh, species that we consider smart um have been tested sorry do- i don't think dogs can do this can dogs do this some some breeds of dogs apparently can do this um like the smart not ones. cats you're not no. saying cats no I, dogs? I i didn't read anything about cats and that's very content. controversial i think we should cut that from our podcast it doesn't really align with our values here at plants and pipettes <laughs> no i have a cat fact about cat intel- a, a cat intelligence later on um so then, i will allow it um so they wondered, like, why are cuttlefish doing that? Because usually, like, look, future planning is important when you have, like, caches of food and you have to plan 
um, that you will eat the food later instead of eating it now. So you're storing it away. Um, that's why it's important. Um, that's why like some birds are doing it. Then there's like some primates doing it because they want to make sure that everybody has enough food in the community before they eat all of the food themselves to sort of have a beneficial group um, fitness. Um, and none of that is really true for, um, yeah, and, and using tools is also a, f a factor. And none of that is true for cuttlefish. They don't use tools. They don't cache food. They are not really social. But they think what might be important for cuttlefish is that they spend most of their days in camouflage, hidden on, on like rocks and stones and waiting for food to come by. And um, they might have evolved to sort of make a judgment call when a certain type of food comes by being like uh, comes comes by being like oh i'll i'll have that now or maybe i'll wait something's better is coming because whenever they break camouflage and they go out in the open they are uh, can be attacked by predators so they really have to balance out like when to stay hidden and when to go for the food and be potentially attacked themselves and maybe that's the reason why they are able to have like some sort of future planning and past what, marshmallow what eats the cuttlefish bigger cuttlefish no i don't know like probably like some some other fishy things like i'm not a marine biologist i don't know maybe maybe like carnivorous plants specific <laughs> like in my plants. mind like the really big giant squids are at the ultimate top of the food chain like <laughs> squid trumps everything in like rocks is a paper squid like squid is like squid eats all yeah, maybe just, it's a big squid. Maybe it's like some sh some sharks, some other, I don't know. I've seen nature documentaries where like cuttlefish and, and octopuses and stuff were eaten, like attacked by bigger fish and they were like chomping into them and eating them. So I can imagine. I mean, I would eat a cuttlefish. That sounds delicious, but I don't know that there are yeah, many. I'm, I'm not a fan of a cuttlefish. I, I, I eat octopus every, I, c I could eat that every day, but cuttlefish and, and squid and so on. Not my favorite type. Like I'd, I'd rather have to let them have marshmallows than have them end up on my plate. Um, I didn't. Again, I didn't really bring any plant facts this time. Um, do you want? Do you want like random thoughts? I can go. I can bring random thoughts that I had this week. Yeah. <laughs> why not, Tegan? At this point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You know what made me really happy is that there was like, you know, Reductress, there was an article that was called Woman Who Thought She Was Sad Actually Fine After Eating Prosciutto. <laughs> and I just felt like, I don't even like prosciutto, but I was like, this is me. This is speaking to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. Okay, sorry, I'll do a real fact. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm leaving that in. Isn't that just beautiful though? Like, yeah. I can I can also relate to that, like having a I very bad day and then having like some good food or just like some like not even like a full meal, but just like something that's enjoyable and be like, oh yeah, actually actually not everything is bad. I think like 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 lockdown has been really hard, and the next time I'm having a bit of a a, a rough time, I'm gonna be just thinking to myself, but Tegan, are you really sad or you just need prosciutto? Like, is that just like? <laughs> Are you really sad, though? <laughs> um, okay. No, so one of the facts I wanted to very briefly mention is a follow-up on stuff that we've brought up before. And there, I mean, that is the finding that now apparently sharks also glow. And that's all I'm going to say on that. Like, I'm, I'm pretty much done with animals glowing at this point. Apparently, like, <laughs> it was cool when just platypuses did it. And then, like, everything else, every man and his dog and his, like, 
fluorescent hair does it and now apparently <laughs> sharks are also glowing and apparently it's like to camouflage them probably because they're scared of being eaten by cuttlefish who think they're a tasty tasty shrimp who even knows like yeah just, it's just a thing but just wait for a bit and then the news will be like this animal doesn't glow like we figure out like 95 <laughs> percent of animals glow um this one doesn't look at that stupid human can't even glow <laughs> Um, Tegan, do you have allergies? No. Uh, oh, yeah, but, like, not to, like, grass and stuff. Yeah, sucks to be you. Uh, I do have that, and I enjoy them very much. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but I, I think we discussed this last episode, how yeah. um, you should feel special and blessed, because, actually, it's the pollen <laughs> getting in you. I think that's an oatmeal comment or a comic originally, right? Could be, yeah. I don't know, but... Um, yeah, we, we talked about like how I was surprised that like in, in January or early February or something, I suddenly got like very bad allergy reactions and it's like so early on and it's like so early during the year. And then today when I was looking up some, like some, some stories, I found one that's called, you're not imagining it, climate change is making allergy season start earlier, um, which is like, I'm this cherry really picking that evidence because it fits my narrative of being... Yeah, this is, this is a good time to link our, our listeners back to our previous episode where we talked about the cognitive bias called confirmation bias. Yes. And that's where when you believe something and then you look for it on the internet, you tend to like favor sites that confirm what you already think. Yeah, but to be honest, I favor anything that has something remotely to do with plants, and this is about pollen, and so I favored this one. Um, but then it also fit my own personal experience, and it's based on a real study. So okay. lots of things um, that sort of balance out my own confirmation bias. But yeah, so they figured out in the study that was done in Bavaria in Germany um, that pollen is uh, like the pollen spread, like the onset of the pollen season is becoming earlier every year. Um, sometimes in some species, it's like two days per year that it's moving um, to earlier time points during the year, which for some species means that they, they are racking up 60 days since 1987. So two months earlier um, today for the pollen season than it was uh, in the late 80s. Um, and... That has to do with climate change, with changes in temperature, with overall changes in like um, weather conditions, because they also realize that um, very often the pollen that you have in any given volume of air is not, not mostly or not only from the species around you. Um, pollen can travel very far, and they realized that in Bavaria, when it, where they had like at several locations they were measuring the pollen counts in the air, that locally the trees were not flowering and releasing pollen yet but still they had already like a massive load of pollen and they realized that it, it must come from like la bigger distances from other areas where the trees are already um, producing and releasing the pollen um, and that's apparently also favored by changes in in the climate that pollen can travel further um, and the the conclusion that they say is like, um, or like at least in the article is that like pollen allergies already impact about 40% of the population in Northern Europe. And they suggest that like higher pollen concentrations and especially longer pollen seasons um, and the spread of pollen to new areas could could make these problems so much worse. So that people who are, are having already allergies or have like, like a basal level of allergies. And I would consider myself that because like for a long time, I did not have any problems with that. But every year I realized sort of it gets worse. And by now, like I could link it to, to the pollen before that I just had a stuffed nose and wasn't 
I didn't know what's going on. Um, and now like I'm at a point where I'm thinking like, oh yeah, I do actually have this, this allergy. And I don't know if it's just because of that, but also because of like, I don't know, like becoming older, having like um, a different immune system, whatever. But yeah, pollen is spreading earlier and bigger distances also thanks to the climate change. You can get those um, allergy and sensitivity treatments where they basically like shove a ton of pollen or a ton of the allergen underneath your skin and basically force your body to deal with it. Um, yeah, I would do all kinds of things if um, we wouldn't have a pandemic and would be afraid to go to the doctors. <laughs> like, I'm yeah, not, fair I'm, enough. I'm not taking any any risks um, like with any medical treatments that are not absolutely necessary. But yeah, absolutely. Like I'm at the point where I would like, like I first wanted to do like a proper test to see if I'm actually right about this and then do like some of these like desensitizing uh, therapies uh, to, to get rid of it. Um, the thing I wanted to talk about, which is, it's not really related to plants still, but it is related to some of our normal segments when we do do our homework um, and this is the something that I only came up, I only came upon in the last couple of weeks. It's called kiriaki. Do you know what kiriaki is? No. So it's basically what we've been trying to get at when we're talking about our non-Y males. So, like this is something that Yaram and I discussed in the past. We wanted to kind of highlight scientists who are like underrepresented, but also scientists who are like operating within this scientific system where they don't have like dominance and power in that system. So this lack of power can come from a variety of reasons. And, you know, it's not just about gender. It's not just about sexuality. It's also about, you know, ability, um, like, um, like racial history, culture, like, like, anything um there's there's lots of different things that can be involved in making you like not the kind of dominant power in the system and we kind of didn't really find a nice word to describe this and we've been using this like kind of non-white male default thing where it's like it's not about being a white male because if you're in a culture where like there's some it's not even about being male it's like it's it's about being not the dominant thing in that culture the one who has like the the most advantages and like i i found this term kiriaki i mean i didn't <laughs> I somebody put something about it and I finally discovered it. Um it was <laughs> a term that was developed in 1992 by a feminist, a radical feminist called Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza. And it's basically a term that is similar to patriarchy, but instead of just kind of like patriarchy just basically puts it on men. And kiriarchy is instead talking about kind of power um so the etymology of the word comes from kyrios um which is a greek term and that means like lord or master um and relates to like you know the authority so like the archy is like the authority domination so it's discussing not just you know how not being a male can be against you it's discussing how having any lack of privilege can end up with you being in like a, a oppressed system a situation and also how different types of lack of privilege can overlap as well. So I think the most famous image that is associated with the term is kind of this like privilege sphere that we've kind of talked about before. So, you know, there's all different forms of privilege. One could be male, one could be, you know, being white in, in a country that's predominantly white, being European, like again, a, a 
a country that's like, you know, North America, Australia, Europe, being heterosexual, able-bodied, um, also like attractiveness, um, your social economic background, so like being middle class, being educated, being, um, you know, uh, your your skin color, your religion, whether it aligns to what's majority, um, all of these different factors. And these are all things that you can have that are advantages and that give you privilege within society. And then on the other side, there's things that can be disadvantages and that give you less privilege compared to somebody who has those things in the society. And they can all like overlap. So I think like the idea of the kiriaki is that it's, it's a bit more descriptive as opposed to just being like, it's patriarchy it's about men versus women it's kind of more about hey like you know intersectionality and we have to discuss different aspects of how people are being oppressed and again not about like comparing them but more like acknowledging that you know i personally am not a male and sometimes in like the stem world that really sucked like there was definitely comments about women and there was like problems with being a woman and having uterus but at the same time i'm white i'm educated i like speak english as a first language i'm european in a european institute like all of these things like rack up to be a certain privilege and like taking into account all of these things so anyway it was a word that i hadn't heard of before and i think it's like I think the the concept behind it is is becoming much more discussed these days, but I didn't actually know about this like kind of word that fits on it, which is it's kind of nice to have the word. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm just like reading the the Wikipedia article on the side. It's super interesting, um, and I figure out how to properly use that word and then use it. <laughs> you know what guys go and read the wikipedia article because i did not explain that very well um (laughs) no i think you did great (laughs) i think the line is okay like here is the i'm gonna read from wiki kiriaki encompasses sexism racism ableism ageism homophobia transphobia classism xenophobia adultism adultcentrism economic injustice prison industrial complex Ephebiophobia, I don't even know what that is. Gerontophobia, old people, colonialism, militarism, ethnocentrism, anthropocentralism, speciesism, and other forms of dominating hierarchies in which the subordination of one personal group to another is internalized and institutionalized. Um, yeah, I yeah. don't know. Did you work out what ephebiophobia is? Yeah, it's, it's sort of the, the opposite to gerontophobia. So the, the fear of the young. So they're saying like you're you're young, you don't know anything, you're not of value. Like be, be, get old first before we take we take you seriously. I have um, a plant fact, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and uh, I want to talk about the moonflower cactus. Um, that's a very specific kind of cactus that grows in the Amazon rainforest. And uh, have you heard of that before by any chance? Because it has like a very particular flowering behavior. It's sort of hidden in the name Moonflower as well. It flowers only with the moon. And only for two hours, once every ten years or something. Yeah, it flowers super rarely. Like, it flowers um, only for one night and um, about every year but really just like one flower one night for about 12 hours so when the moon is out um it flowers although i don't think it's related to the moon but it's like when it's night is it a cactus it's a cactus but it's a cactus mm. epiphyte which is even weirder to me like it's a cactus that grows no it's one of these like hanging part. cactus with like very lotus like flowers right yeah mm. and um this plant I think if you want a popular culture reference there's the film Crazy Rich Asians, and I think it has like a similar thing where they like 
Have you seen that film? No. Fun rom-com. Good for lockdown. Um, they have like an event where this flower is opening only for a few hours and everybody's gathering around. And yeah. I don't know if it's specifically a moonflower, but it's like a very similar kind of cactus. Yeah, I mean, it happens from time to time, right? That these flowers have... Sorry, I have to... Cat wanted to get out like 20 minutes ago and now I wanted to be back in. Um, so yeah, you have a couple of plants that have this like weird flowering behavior that they are... They open only very rarely or only for a very short amount of time and so on. And um, this this moonflower cactus is also particular in it in, in the fact that there's only like 13 individuals outside of the Amazonian rainforest that could be cultivated by horticulturists. So oh, um, wow. it's also really hard to study it because of that. And um, when you when you manage to culture it outside of the rainforest, you have no guarantee that it will ever flower. But now in the Cambridge University Botanical Garden, they realized that there's like a flower butt forming and they set up a camera and they actually filmed like the whole flower opening and um, then withering within 12 hours, which is um, quite impressive. You can watch that video. And it's like a time lapse, like they didn't put the 12 hours in real time on there. It's a time lapse of the flower opening. Um, interesting, like it, it emits a very strong, like sweet smell at, uh, at the beginning when it's opening. So to attract pollinators and um, there's apparently like a specific kind of moth in the Amazon rainforest that is attracted to this. Um, they didn't go into like in the article into the, the mechanism, how that works when like are all of the cactus cacti synchronized in, in the um in that forest uh, because otherwise like the the moth comes and sits on like one flower and then can't find another flower for a couple of nights until another one opens so i imagine there must be like some sort of synchronization going on um and also like it can't really self itself so it can't really like you, you it has male and female bits and you even if you bring them together um, it probably won't make any seeds. Like they tried that now in in the botanical gardens, um, but um, they are not very hopeful that it will work because cacti apparently are very um, bad at reproducing on their own. Like they they usually need pollen from another individual to actually make set seed and um, reproduce sexually. But can they not cleanly reproduce it? Like it seems like a cactus you can basically just like snap a leaf off and make another cactus. I don't know. Maybe they could do that. Um, yeah, I, I have no idea why it's so hard to cultivate it. There must be a good reason for it because that only 13 places uh, in the world have have a, spe uh, a specimen. Um, maybe like you also like you need to be able to culture sort of the, the host plant um, under certain circumstances so that you can actually then put this cactus on it and have it grow. I don't know. But um, yeah, they're trying I don't to get think, I don't think it's I actually don't know, but if it's an epiphyte, it doesn't necessarily need. Um, it's not like taking. It's not a parasite. It's not like taking yeah. nutrients. It's just kind of sitting there usually. So I don't know if it would need the host. Um, yeah. Do you know the name of the species that you're talking about? Yeah, of course I know the species. It's um, it's uh, Selenicerus viti, um, or the Amazon moonflower. Okay, the the one from the the film that I was talking about is called um, Epiphyllum oxypetalum. So okay, yeah. it's a different species, but very similar idea that it only flowers for like once a year, maybe over a few days, also at night time, um, and like yeah, linked to this very special event. Yeah. 
so yeah go and have a look at the video it's it's really pretty you can see sort of the excited um horticulturists like standing around the plant when it's open and and looking at it in the video and like poking it to get take some samples they like took some 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 uh, like cut off some parts of the flower to dissect it and look at it under the microscope because obviously you can do that only very rarely um and they hope now that it will flower every year but they they have no way to be sure about that so maybe like something aligned just right that it worked out this year um um, or maybe it's sort of reached that state of maturity that it will from now on flower every year. Yeah, I remember you and I went, um, we were in Hamburg once with a group of friends and we were in the Hamburg Botanical Gardens and I think we saw one of these um, large, uh, what's it called, amorphophallus, is that the mm -hmm. word? I think so, um, the yeah. smelly ones. Yeah, like really big um, with a huge kind of like, fallacy bit in the middle um that like again opens just for a very short amount of time i think again open only for three or four days and we happened to be in the garden when that opened and yeah smells like like literally like because its aim is to attract kind of flies and things that prefer poop corpse flowers they're called amorphophallus is the is the kind of genus name i think amazing little plants i guess like mostly like again this is a cactus i guess mostly what they're doing is they're kind of conserving energy and then just putting all of that energy into this like one flower it's really this kind of you see it with animals also right where you have some animals that produce like thousands and thousands of, of offspring and some which just produce like one a year or like you know one every few years there's like this definition of k or r reproduction whether you make just a few with like high quality or you make like a ton of like little kind of crappy ones where you don't put as much paternal or maternal investment into yeah yeah, um. here for this for the moonflower, they they speculate that um, it mostly relies on camouflage. It's sort of like hidden in the trees that it's growing on, um, and uh, tries to avoid being eaten. And therefore, like the flowers would attract also predators. And they hypothesize that um, they shorten the amount of time that they actually become visible. And apart from that, it's really hard to spot this plant and specifically attack this plant, um, which might protect it from from being eaten. I have another plant fact, shockingly, um, which is something I saw via the Nature Briefing. Um, it's referencing a paper that came out in Nature Sustainability, and there's also kind of a short article about it in Nature Nature, Big Nature. Um, and it's basically the fact that cannabis farming turns out to not be very great for the environment. And it's for exactly the reasons that you would like think of. It's that people just grow cannabis in greenhouses with a lot of like electrical lights, which is not super environmentally friendly. And the reason behind this is basically that cannabis is such a high cost crop that as a farmer, there's like, it's only a benefit to grow it under these like energy intensive conditions. Like the cost yeah. of the energy is low compared to the crop. Um, so it's not that people can't grow cannabis outdoors. Like I'm sure... <laughs> Many of us know that cannabis can be grown outdoors. It's just that, like it's faster, quicker, you know, more robust. I would rather so. say like most people know that you can grow it indoors very, very well because in most places, if you have a cannabis plant outside, people notice and then there's problems. Um, even if you have a permit and everything. Like I know that like there was a story that 
like cannabis, but not for like the, the, the kind that you can smoke, but just like hemp was, was a, a crop that was mm -hmm. grown quite extensively also in like Germany. Um, and then it sort of fell out of fashion. Um, and now some people are trying to sort of regrow it again and use it because it's like apparently is like a, a super crop. You can eat it, you can make fabric from it, tons of stuff. Um, But they have problems because people constantly sort of call the cops on their on their on their fields and so on because they're like, oh, there's cannabis growing here. Cannabis is is uh, is illegal, um, and therefore it might be like yeah, just a lot less stress with the authorities if you have it in a greenhouse with mm -hmm. a door and you can say like, look, I have a permit. I, I can I can do okay, this. Okay, so that's that's like the good point. So I should say, like, as everybody knows, it's easy to grow cannabis when you have a grow light. But as it turns out, grow lights they require energy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I I haven't read the full article. I've just kind of looked at this, but yeah, this yeah. is just basically. Yeah, and then also like, like but if if you yeah. grow it for the THC, so for the the active compound in there for like recreational or medical use. Um, You only want female plants and you don't want to get any pollen on them. You want them to like create the flower buds but not be pollinated. And therefore, I guess also if you grow them outside, you have more stress with sort of like introduction of, of pollen. I mean, it's not like there's like tons of, I don't know, male cannabis running around in the wild, is there? Yeah, I don't know. But if you have like a field and you have like stuff growing on the sidelines and there you don't select as much as you select on your plot i don't know i could just imagine like i've heard tales from people who grow it grow them at home and they were very scared whenever they had like a spontaneous escape that like um looked female first but then turned out to be male because that can like spoil the whole harvest um so uh maybe that's also a reason but yeah but growing plants indoors is is energy intensive who knew? yeah who knew <laughs> My my last uh, fact before the cat fact today is a follow up on something that you brought um, a few weeks ago about MC Hammer, who had like a good like statement on science, um, and I have a sort of follow up for uh, like about MC Hammer and science. Um, there has been a study done by an Australian DJ and neuroscientist, Rebecca Polson, also called a Baxter, I think is, the, is her DJ name. Um, and she's studying the, the brains of zebrafish larvae. And she's interested in figuring out how they perceive sound, um, how the brains react of these la uh, zebrafish larvae to different frequencies and so on. And so she did like some like frequency sweeps and white noises and so on, like lots of like very controlled types of sound. But then she figured, like, look, I have this speaker set up to play music to these larvae. Let's play some music. And she played some of her own music, but then she also played You Can Touch This from by, by MC Hammer. And she could see the neurons firing in, like, the... Um, in to the rhythm of, of MC Hammer um, when it came to the chorus. And there's, like, a video of it where you have, like, the music playing and you see, like, the different neurons firing up sort of in, in the rhythm responding to certain frequencies there you can you can see the video for yourself and you can um also read like a longer story about this and then like um after she did the experiment she then on, went on twitter and sort of wrote about her her experiment and um mentioned her like a preprint and then um mc hammer like tweeted the the, the no. preprint um and it's like like with just like the academ uh, academic like the, the, the title of the paper and tweeted that and apparently like he he liked that and um, I'm gonna encourage all plant scientists to like play MC Hammer to yeah. their plants. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, MC Hammer like... is a big supporter of science. Yeah. 
pretty That's cool. That's nice. That's very sweet, actually. Do you, you bring something? a cat fact? Bring the no, cat. No, I think it's cat fact time. I think you got to play the cat fact jingle. Cat fact. Wait, wait, wait. Um, so we talked about a behavioral experiment before about cuttlefish, and now I have one about. That's on, true. On we cats. did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in uh, in this experiment, um, they wanted to see whether a cat, like, w- no, I'm I'm describing the setup first, and then you, we maybe we can figure out what they wanted to test. So you had a person sitting there that's like mm-hmm. friends with the cat. It's like the owner of the cat, or the cat owns the person, like depending on how you look at it, and. Um, the person struggled with a container to open it and there's like two strangers sitting on either side of um, the person and one of the um, pe- the strangers offers to help and then like helps with the container that's like one experiment and the other stranger doesn't do anything and Sorry, then, the, the, the cat's owner is struggling with the container yeah and the cat is watching the whole time that's and the important cat's to watching somebody help yeah watching okay. somebody help and then in the other experiment um the the again same setup but the person like the the owner is asking for help and the other person refuses the stranger refuses and is not helping mm-hmm. um and uh when you do that experiment on dogs um ah, yeah, and then the last bit of the experiment is both strangers then sort of turn to the cat and offer treats and then you me- measure like to who yeah, the, kitty, kitty, the, the kitty. kitty is going. And in, when you do that with dogs, um, the dogs don't really care about like the person helping, but they will not take the treat from the stranger who's refusing to help. So they observe... So when they refuse, do they just say no or do they like beat up the owner or like... They, they just don't take something. the treat from them. They don't trust them. No, um, no, no, not the dog. When when the the human says no to the other human, hey, they just, do they like, say no in like an aggressive way? I don't or know. Like, they just said like, like they refuse to help. They didn't say that. Um, okay. Uh, that sort of the non-helper um, is like ag- aggressively attacking them or anything. But okay, yeah. so here's here's my problem already. Like the thing about cats is they love boxes. So like if a cat saw somebody struggling with a box. That to them would be like that person having a jolly good time by themselves with a box. <laughs> so if like there's two humans and they say, hey, check me out with my jolly good time with the box. I personally, if I were a cat, would think it would be inappropriate to interfere with that person's like one on one time with the box. <laughs> so like the one who like seems to help is actually interfering with what I would say is like me time, like self care time, like box one-on-one alone time so no but what would you say what would what is the cat doing like did both strangers then offer treats in like both experiments and what is the cat doing doesn't care doesn't care about the people it goes for the best treat yeah exactly like the the cat is completely indifferent to the whole box struggle um where dogs sort of identify friends and foes and don't trust foes um the the cats they don't care but they probably... But, I mean, this is the question of how you emote struggle. Like, if if a human is, like, struggling with a box, what does that mean? Like, if they're, like, very upset, like, are they crying? Or are they just, like... That, uh, I mean, uh, that's, that, like, that's a very good point because, like, the, the problem probably or the, the result of the study is not that cats, like, they see somebody who's bad to, to their friend, the owner, and they don't care about it, that they're sort of psychopaths. They just can't read the social cues there like 
dogs um, are sort of pack animals, they're social animals, where cats are usually solitary animals. And but therefore, they, they can't even understand the concept and therefore they can't make a judgment whether or not they like the person because to them, it's like it's like we're watching some animal that we don't understand and they do something together and then later we have to decide like which animal we like the best. Like we can't. But really I'm going to go one step further and say it's not like I mean this is very I would say this is very insulting to the cats this idea that the cats can't understand the social cues like maybe the cat is just like you know what he's doing him and he's playing with his box like sure Yoram wants to play with the box for a bit like <laughs> that's not my business like why would that be my business I don't think it means that the cat doesn't like cats often like I've seen my cat struggle with the existence of her own tail it doesn't mean she's actually frustrated or terrified by her tail. She's just kind of like expressing herself in a stupid way because she's a cat, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, it, it could be that uh, I think that like just cats have no understanding of, of like human under, uh, interaction in the way that they can realize, okay, this is a good human, this is a bad human, and therefore I don't, I don't trust a good, the bad human or I prefer the good human. Like if they would do the same to a cat, they, the cat would probably make a judgment. But if uh, like if the cat is playing with a box and one stranger is helping the cat and one stranger is taking the box away from the cat, the cat would probably make a judgment on that. But just observing how humans interact, the cat's just like, yeah, humans are flailing around okay, with their arms. But so when I was growing up, I had a cat that was very like emotionally bonded to me. And I always took showers. I didn't like bath bathing. So like one time I took a bath and I was in the bath. And my cat came into the bathroom. She saw me, what she saw as me drowning in water. And she started screaming, like screaming and panicking and like pacing and running and like trying to check if I'm okay. Like that to her was distress. Yeah. And I'm just saying like, if somebody came and helped me out of the bath, that would have been a good test. But me like frolicking in a box... Yeah. I just don't think she would have intervened. Yeah. I think she would be aware that I'm okay in the box. Whereas like for her, like the, I just don't think they, I think this is an equality versus equity situation where like the cat just doesn't see the box as a threat and the dog is stupid and sees the box as a threat. I think <laughs> this is what's happening here. Yeah. And I said like before in the show that we will have an experiment at the end where we realize that dogs are actually stupider than cats. And that's exactly the outcome of this. I think with that, we talked enough about whales and cuttlefish and cats and lots, lots of non-plant things. Um, where, when, if people want to reach out to us, where can I find you? On Instagram and Facebook, you can talk to me. That's at Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants Pipettes. We also have a website, www.plantsandpipettes.com, where we publish once or twice a week or we'll blog on one of our favorite stories in plant science from the last couple of months. And you can rate us wherever you can rate podcasts or you can tell your friends about us and you can always um, leave us feedback. Um, like just this week, we had something interesting like coming back for, on a blog post, like already an older blog post, but I'm always happy to read comments where they're like, you actually got this wrong. Here's my take was on it. Was that what the comment was? It wasn't that I got this wrong. It was about like vertical farming and like I'm I'm not a fan of vertical farming. And um, somebody was like, yeah, but look, if 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 you look at um, like water use, vertical farming is really good. I'm like, yeah, that's that's like I was really happy about that input. I mean, I my response to that is that like 
water use is not as big as a problem as energy use right now in terms of like climate change and so on. So right now I would still not be in favor of it. But if we have like clean energy, then water use can become like the next thing that we have to solve and then vertical farming could help. But right now, usually... Yeah. I mean, Not like most of our blog posts are kind of quite factual, but every now and then you're on write something really opinionated. And if you just yeah. like go and like search for opinion on the blog and then just like comment on all of those. Yeah. And just like destroy me, please. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so you can come back to us and uh, leave feedback also on like stuff that we say on the show. Um, that would be very nice. And then our opening closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And talk to you next time. Goodbye. I have another fact, actually. So um, there's a publication that came out by Mastroianni and colleagues that was published on the 9th of March um, in PNAS. And the publication is called Do Conversations End When People Want Them To? And as it turns out, they don't. Um, just 2% of the conversations ended when both parties wanted them to end. And with that, goodbye. Oh, that was amazing. <laughs> <laughs>